1: Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Monica kurloshkar Steinbach and Leah Kalmanson, authors of A Practical Guide to World Philosophies, Selves, Worlds, and Ways of Knowing, published in 2021 by Bloomsbury Academic Press. It's the first in a new series of primers which provide a platform for diverse philosophical perspectives. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Monica and Leah.
2: Thanks. Uh, Thank you.
1: So let's dive in. Your book focuses on what you're calling world philosophies. We'll talk about what that means as we go along. But first of all, what's your book's main goal and why did you think it was an important book to write?
2: I'll let you take that, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, Well, it's the beginning of a series. Uh, Both Leah and I work on diversifying philosophy. Uh, Both of us uh, are um, at home in that which is called comparative philosophy and cross-cultural philosophy. And I think, if I may speak for Leah, that we were uh, sort of unhappy with what we saw happening there because it was not doing justice uh, to the source material. At least in my work, I could see that very clearly. So... Uh, very soon, we began working on the methodological aspect of how we could work on ourselves to do more justice to the material we were working on.
1: Mm. And Leah, what about you?
0: Yes, I'll just I'll just add to that that the the book was conceived of as sort of a, a, a flagship text or an anchor text to the the book series at Bloomsbury, um, and the whole project was conceived of as providing a venue for people that were doing the kinds of work in comparative philosophy that might push some of the boundaries um, of the way that particular discourse is sometimes conceived and enacted. Um, and so the, the the book itself, in many ways, was our chance to work out just what we mean by that, right? That we had some ideas about these methodological interventions in mind and and ideas about the kinds of work the series would promote, um, but the book itself and our writing of it was really a chance for us to articulate that as specifically as possible.
1: Great. So both of you work in, as, as you said, Monica, diverse, diverse philosophies, world philosophy, comparative philosophy. So how did you come to be interested in world philosophy? And then how did you, for this book, choose the particular philosophies you focus on, as there are quite a few to choose from?
2: Yeah. Um, I initiated and co-founded the Journal of World Philosophies in 2014. Uh, it began with a German publisher, and then we moved on to Indiana University Press. Um, but the journal was initiated because of my own dissatisfaction uh, with, as I said, uh, my own work on uh, this area. And... Um, and I, my doctoral supervisor, Hubert uh, Schleichert, uh, was someone who came from the Vienna Circle, has trained me. Uh, to be methodologically (laughs) very uh, close to the source text in such a way that you're working on your own concepts to disclose the kind of language which is out there in the source material. Uh, So that is uh, what sort of uh, fed my own interest in world philosophies for a long time. And from um, him, I've also learned to be careful to the uh, the plurality of philosophies we have out there. There might be just more than one uh, which we are familiar with.
0: I think, yeah, I think my path is 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 pretty circuitous, as it were. Um, My original specializations in graduate school were in the Kyoto School philosophy of Japan, and I was particularly interested in them because they were studying Some of the European philosophers I was also studying. And so that moment of kind of cross cultural, early cross cultural contact in the 20th century between Japan and Europe on philosophical questions was interesting to me. But I always found that I needed more and more context to really think about the Kyoto school at all. So to read Kyoto school, I needed to read. Kamakura-era Japanese Buddhists. Uh, In order to read Kamakura-era Japanese Buddhists, I needed to read Sung Dynasty Chinese Confucians, right? So it was this this constant process of trying to contextualize kind of the intellectual history that in some ways complicated comparative philosophy for me immediately because it immediately became a diverse project. It was already this kind of internationally situated cross-cultural discourse that produced Kyoto school from this deep and rich intellectual heritage, you know, stretching sort of from early Buddhist thought in India through China into Japan and these ongoing discourses carried out through this textual commentarial tradition. And and so that for me, I immediately um, did what maybe you're not supposed to do academically, which is became so broad that I was no longer specialized. And so in that sense, though, I think I began to think through exactly how Cross-cultural dialogue is constructed, and maybe began to embrace that it should be a little messy, um, and and hard to classify uh, because that's often how it unfolds anyway. So I think that was how I came into the more the broader world philosophical discourse.
1: Mm-hmm. So both of you are using the words uh, or the terms uh, world philosophies, Monica, in your journal, uh, Leah, in your description of your your sort of path to, to this way of thinking about philosophy. And this is a, a phrase that comes up in the book. In in comparison to, well, comparative philosophy, um, can you explain to the listeners how you understand comparative philosophy and world philosophies, why these categorizations matter?
2: Um, a comparative philosophy, uh, the way I have uh, learned it... Uh, is uh, worked, not everybody in the field, but uh, many of them, uh, worked with this very derivative approach uh, uh, and with this binary between the East and West, also with this focus only, uh, or mainly, on the Asian traditions. Um, uh, That kind of work which people like... uh, Uh, Vrinda Dalmia uh, Gerald Larson criticized very early on is derivative and basically is mining those traditions for debates which are happening in this part of the world in Europe and North America Uh, if you pluralize again doesn't do justice to the source material if you pluralize your methodological approach the way you're approaching these philosophies you may then come to this very different understanding of how to even work with that source material this is uh, why uh my, I emphasize the plural in this case, um, world philosophies and not world philosophy because we're talking about the diversity of methodological, uh, of philosophical methodologies. We're talking about the embodied nature of philosophizing. Uh, we are talking about philosophy as an ever-present human possibility. And finally, it is also a step to Disrupting that philosophical neocolonialism happening in those parts of the world uh, which are called, which have these histories of uh, colonialism, but today largely focus on what is happening in debates in Euro America and in Europe.
1: Right. And I guess we should add to when we say in America, we're often speaking about North America, yes. not uh, the yes. Americas, including yeah. the Southern. Yeah. So this this relates then to what you discuss in the first chapter of the book, the opening chapter, which is the history of the academic discipline of philosophy, and especially this common narrative today, at least, in which the Greeks are the origin of philosophy. Uh, So both of you take up disciplinary distinctions between religion, area studies, and philosophy. Why is this history important, especially in light of what you're talking about here, world philosophies? And why? Why do you think it's important to challenge disciplinary distinctions or, or problematize them, or how, however you would put that?
0: Um, maybe I'll speak for a moment yes. just to the his, the historical part there. Um, you know, and I think in many ways too, what you know, a lot of people in comparative philosophy, at least in the past ten to fifteen years, have also begun to feel that that's sort of a convenient term. It's the term that is stuck. And there's a lot of people trying to uh, change the way that particular methodological practice is presented. So part of what we do, I hope, is to provide a venue uh, for a lot of people who are also thinking through the ways that that discourse was constructed from the early 20th century moving forward. And part of that goes back to the historical narrative we discuss in in that first chapter of the book. Which has to do with this this fiction that philosophy is Greek in origin, um, and I think it's a fiction that we all sort of grew up with. Um, there's some sentimental attachment to this narrative, you know, regarding sort of Socrates and his his, his personality uh, and his sort of stat, status as as a founder of this particular style of subversive dialogue, you know um, And but when you read a book like Africa, Asia and the History of Philosophy, this is a book by Peter K. J. Pock which is an amazing work in intellectual history that goes back and uncovers the fact that the Greek origin of philosophy was indeed proposed at a certain point in time um, during the life of Kant um, and for certain very demonstrably racialized reasons, right? That there was a narrative about racial essentialism promoted by only certain people at that time, uh, which did hold that only certain groups of human beings were capable of philosophy. And so philosophy had to begin with a group of white people. And this was also around the time that this theory of race emerged on the scene such that the Greeks would even have been conceived of as something we now today understand when we use the word white. So just knowing that history and knowing that prior to this particular intervention in the way the canon was constructed, prior to that, many historic historians of philosophy talked about diverse areas of the world that had philosophy or diverse origin points for philosophy, that, that that philosophy began in India, philosophy began in Egypt, philosophy began in these other places, that when you realize that those were common narratives and that they were indeed purposefully excluded from the canon at a certain point in time, again, according to a certain racial agenda, I think that, that for me at least went a long way toward clearing up what remained of any of my sort of sentimental attachment to what I'd been taught. Um, and though I may still in some ways love that, you know, that image of Socrates holding forth in the Athenian square uh, that I, I, I find it very irresponsible to promote that historical narrative. And so in some ways what we're doing is just, bringing back in historical narratives that, that once did shape canons in philosophy and reminding people that world philosophical discourses used to be the norm rather than the outlier.
2: Mm. Yeah. And if I may add to what Leah just said, I mean, um, Malcolm, you said, asked earlier, why uh focus on those particular philosophies and not others? As Leah just said, I mean, what we're tr- trying to do here is basically... Uh, pushing the boundaries of the discipline as we know them today and the traditions we are using in the I mean or mentioning in that book it's just a beginning I mean we're talking about indigenous philosophies in the book we're talking about philosophy in the of the Islamic world of Indian philosophy Chinese philosophy Japanese philosophy African philosophy and Latin American philosophy but there are other new areas emerging like for example Asian American philosophy yeah, mm-hmm. so there's there's much more ground we can cover, but this what we are doing in that very short book is just a beginning. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's it seems like too in the first chapter you you so you take up this history of the academic discipline. You you show the the historical situation, the situatedness of this origin story and then you also talk about the the origin stories of other categories what people talk about as well religion or area studies or philosophy which uh, you also historicize can you speak to that a little bit why why focus on discipline and and, and not just uh, the origin of philosophy why talk about religious studies or, or religion
0: sure I can I can step in there uh, this the there's another great book out there called *The Invention of Religion in Japan* um, by Jason Josephson Storm, and that book is about the history of the translation of the term philosophy uh, religion into Japanese. And reading that book was one of those moments for me as a scholar that 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 really challenged sort of the way I was conceiving of my own discourse. Um, But part of what his book looks at is is just that in order to translate something like religion into the Japanese language, this happened um, during the Meiji period, in order to translate something like religion into the Japanese language, you also needed to translate, for example, words like idolatry um, or superstition. These were the partner categories to religion in European discourses, right? So working out what religion means, you need to understand what differentiates for the European intellectual at that time. Proper religion from idolatry, right? And so, of course, the Japanese language didn't have a word for something like idolatry because it didn't conceive of it didn't conceive of the discourse we call religion in that same conceptual web that includes those kinds of partner categories like idolatry um, on the one hand or secularism on the other. So all of these categories that help map out these terms that help map out what religion means in the West. You can't just translate the single word into another language, but you really have to translate the entire, all the baggage, right? All the baggage of the full conceptual web. And that's why I feel like this project has to be cross-disciplinary because philosophy itself as a discipline was constructed as a part of that same emerging conceptual web. There's this great, another great book called Socrates Tenured. Right, which talks about the history of the formation of, of our contemporary understanding of the discipline, like what does it mean to say philosophy is a discipline? And so that, that, that heritage there, um, as soon as you start questioning what philosophy is in this kind of critical historical way, and maybe with an eye to colonial history, you start to, you start to need to learn about the construction of all the other disciplines that exist in academia today that contribute to this, this landscape where these sort of inequities um, are still being enacted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to continue and and move on to some of the discussions of philosophers and, and philosophies in the book. But I do think it's worth pausing here, because this goes back to your point about comparative philosophy, East, West, and, and so on, that it sounds to me like what the simple message is, if what you're doing is trying to find a preconceived category of philosophy in some uh, Eastern, quote unquote, analog What you're doing is you're going to be carving things up in a way which doesn't do justice to the situatedness of those philosophies. And you're going to get things which, well, they only match your preconceived notions and you're not going to really understand and you're not going to really challenge your own ideas. Is that fair? Yes.
2: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well put, yeah. Uh, basically, what we're doing, I mean, what we're saying there is you're, you're carving out, as you've said very well, you're carving out the world with the with the concepts you use and um, believing that they're the only concepts out there in the world. But everybody who's worked on these traditions, know there's just more, yeah? And that from the other side of the spectrum, you cannot you, you cannot even claim that um, the category you're using to to, to capture those terms, um, uh, yeah is doing mm-hmm. justice to them
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah Well let's let's turn to another main uh, thesis in your book. So one of the interesting things about this book is it, it's an introduction to the series of, of, of primers primers I'm never sure how to pronounce that word. Uh, so you're giving some methodological discussion but you're also focusing on questions about epistemology about personhood, and so uh, you talk about what you call relational knowing in the book, and this is seems to be important to, uh, to some of your methodology. So can you explain what you mean by relational knowing? So one question, there's a few things you could say, obviously, but is this a new analysis of knowing that we're already engaged in, or is relational knowing a success term in the sense of? being an aspiration for how we ought to know. I, that was one part that I wasn't quite sure of how to take it. Could, so could you help us with what, what relational knowing is? Uh,
2: uh, relational knowing basically uh, directs our attention to, how, to the process of knowing, how we are even knowing. And in this kind of knowing, uh, knowing is not only about, as I said earlier, capturing reality, because we are also... Uh, as you said earlier, making those worlds as we go along uh, with our concepts, with our own way of being in the world. And uh, depending on the standpoints you take, uh, your own access to that so-called reality changes. So what you're doing is you're basically uh, approaching reality from different perspectives. Um, And... It is, at the same time, a very ethical standpoint. It is, as uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, trying to do justice to the source material you are attempting to make understandable.
1: So it sounds like it's it's both aspirational in the sense that it, there's a, a way in which we want to be relational. No, but it's also an account of... Knowing in general, in the sense that this is an aspect of epistemology that you think has been underexamined. Yeah. Okay. And so you, ta- you take up this theme of relational knowing in a, in a few different philosophical contexts, uh, so we can talk about those as we, as we go on. Um, maybe can you just give us a high-level high overview of uh, one or two places where you see relational knowing in some of these world philosophies?
0: I'll let you take that too, Monica.
2: The book is approaching the different traditions we are even looking at from the perspective of relational knowing. Uh, So take, for example, that whole discussion we had on the term Indian philosophy. Um, uh, The standard uh, interpretation is that you have those particular schools out there and You divide them in this uh, way, the usual approach of Astika, Dastika. But if you take relational knowing, you might even have to question what we have so far. uh, That it is not enough to say the tradition has done that for us and that's how we are going to continue. You may need to look at the formation of that tradition very critically. And then be perhaps even open to the possibility that you take other approaches, yeah, to realities.
0: Maybe I'll add so, to that. Uh, actually, right, so, oh, go ahead. <clears throat> Sorry, Marco. Oh,
1: I was just gonna. So, in terms of uh, the the relational relational knowing, then the ostica distinction, or sometimes characterized as orthodox heterodox, uh, which is, you say in the book, a, a problem, but but uh, people who affirm something and people who deny something, that's been a categorizing sort of schema for Indian philosophy, but you're you're trying to challenge that and other organizational schemas in the book. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Okay. And so I will add that I think part of the relational aspect there is that we do try to remain critically aware of the way our word choices are relationally situated, right? So so I don't think we conceived of ourselves as telling readers how the world works or, you know, this sort of particular paradigm has been the right one all along and now we're informing you of that. But aware of the fact that when we make these word choices about how to name traditions, you know, how to say world philosophies instead of maybe cross-cultural philosophy, something like that, how the traditions themselves are referring to themselves, Um, For example, I use the word Ruism in my written work instead of Confucianism for a, a lot of reasons that might be too complicated to get into here, but in short, because it's a better approximation of the Chinese term for the tradition and a better approximation of how the tradition conceived of itself. But even with that, right, I'm not so much saying this word choice has now told you what we should have been doing all along, but more this word choice is an intervention in contemporary discourse that also changes the landscape, right? So in that sense, that what we do is relationally situated in the book, in terms of the choices that we make. And I think we try to remain critically aware that what we do, we impact each other, we impact other scholars, um, we impact discourses that are ongoing. And so our word choices then remain in flux. And I think that's part of the What Monica, when she brings in this term relational knowing, it kind of captures that temporal dimension, too, that this is an ongoing project, uh, that the terms themselves remain in relation with other terms in a changing landscape.
1: Yeah, right. And so this and this is something that comes out in your discussion of the histories of these philosophies themselves. So it's something that's it's sort of happening at the level of your own methodology, but this is happening in the context of the uh, the philosophies themselves that you're looking at. So I, I guess I'm thinking about one example of your discussion of African philosophies. So you talk about a dispute, for instance, about what linguistic patterns and ritual can tell us about various African approaches to personhood. Of course, there's no single African philosophy. Africa is Africa's a massive continent, long history, different different nations and tribes. But so one, one takeaway from this discussion was this... The importance of contextualization. So maybe can you talk about that discussion a little bit for us? Because that I think our listeners might find interesting. What's at issue in this debate?
2: Um, it is a very complex debate. And uh, the takeaway here would be that, uh, as you rightly said, uh, basically, uh, if we were doing enough of work in the discipline, we would be open to the possibility that there are plural African philosophies. Uh, Strangely enough, uh, we still are using the singular form here. Uh, uh that itself is one takeaway that maybe uh, we need to look at that very carefully, at uh, the term itself. We have to also look at the forces which have led up to the formation of that singular term uh, uh, historically, contextually, uh, and then do a kind of critical study about whether... Debates on personhood, which we find today in African philosophy, can maybe uh, make comprehensible all the practices we find on the ground. And this is a very, very rich and complex discussion uh, happening within the African continent and happening within those uh, groups who uh, engage with African philosophy. Many of these debates are still unfamiliar to Several people who do comparative philosophy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the the at issue here, one of the questions I take it is, when different African uh, thinkers talk about person, yeah. uh, being a person, is this a concept that is uh, is aspirational in the sense that one can be uh, attain personhood, uh, lose personhood. Or is this uh, more something like just a a feature of of human beings that we are persons? Is that a simplistic, but is that getting at the idea?
2: Um, The debate on personhood within African philosophy has been uh, dominated to a large extent in the past by the debates we've had in analytical philosophy or in continental philosophy. And the younger scholars um, uh, working on African philosophy um, are trying to make a case for the fact that maybe you cannot split up personhood in this descriptive understanding of personhood or a kind of uh, normative. It is both at the same time, simply because in in that particular context, and we'll have to, of course, the second thing is we'll have to look at... uh, Different African philosophies, but that which is taken as African philosophy today, uh, the term personhood itself is this complex whole which is combining both descriptive and uh, normative elements.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, it's, so yeah. it pushes back on our yeah. presuppositions about how to yeah. even understand the debate.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, did you want to say anything in here, Leah? I want to make sure I don't cut you off as I as I move through.
0: Oh no, that's fine. Go ahead.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, so you're, you're another part of the book. So you talk about African philosophies. We just mentioned classical Indian, and we'll talk about some Chinese philosophy here in a moment in, in uh, the work of Zhu Xi. But one thing that the book is doing is moving beyond these sort of fairly standard categories by now of Indian, Chinese, and African philosophy, of, as, as well as Islamic, um, to focus on currently existing indigenous mm-hmm. philosophies and not just looking uh, at a sort of the, the frozen past so what is indigenous philosophy first of all mm-hmm. let's let's start there and then maybe we can talk about research and, and teaching so what do you mean by indigenous philosophy
2: yeah uh, to, i think to even understand the terms which are being used in the book uh, we'll have to uh, first uh, move away from the survey model of philosophy we have had uh, so far in the discipline. The survey model uh, pres- presumed that, especially when it came to cross-cultural content, you sort of do a survey, uh, show us what you have out there, and then let's talk about it. But uh, the, mo- the book itself is moving away from a survey model more to a meaning-making model. Yeah, uh, so, and that is one of the major claims the book is making. Uh, basically, philosophy is about meaning making. It is about uh, humans being situated in different spatio-temporal contexts and making meaning of the lives, uh, their selves, their lives, uh, and the world out there. Uh, yeah. So, if you take that understanding of philosophy, um, then uh, I think the question would not be, uh, what do you mean uh, by uh, uh, indigenous philosophy it would more the focus would be more on how have indigenous philosophers understood themselves and their context in particular uh, yeah uh, time frames uh, and places Uh, uh, so it's very difficult to say indigenous philosophies consists of a b c d Uh, you know we'll have to look at particular contexts to make to fill up that term with content.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, so listening to Monica...
1: An, uh, professional... Sorry, go ahead, Leah. Oh,
0: am sorry. There must be a lag. They can edit out some of this stuff, right? Oh, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Um, one thing I'll uh, add to that, listening to Monica talk, and I was thinking about this the other day, is that one thing I wish we had said in the intro, right at the very beginning of the book, is that this is an introduction to world philosophies, right? It is a practical guide to world philosophies, but it's not an easy one, um, and the reason is because there is no such thing. No such thing as an easy guide to world philosophies. That it is inevitably a vexed term. Uh, learning about any of the kind of terms that we include within it uh, takes you immediately into complicated territory. Um, everything leads to just from complexity to more complexity, and I think that term, you know, indigenous philosophy, is a is a case in point, and that we really do think have to think about how that term. Has been constructed as a site of solidarity um, across cultures uh, in, in relation to the history of colonialism that has shaped such a category as, as indigeneity, right? And that it has been claimed um, as a space of solidarity across different cultures um, in discourse today, and that there's so much exciting work coming out of that discourse. But, you know, like Monica said, to sort of frame it as what is it is already putting us, I think, not only into epistemological, but into maybe like ontological territory uh, that we, I, I think throughout the writing of the book, we're constantly resisting. And that's probably why uh, the book doesn't always feel like an easy, you know, gu- practical guide um, to world philosophies. But nonetheless, I think it is a practical guide to walking through some very complex territory.
1: Yeah. It's a it's a it's a challenge uh, to to think and uh, and talk about here because using the term indigenous philosophy seems to to pick out a um, a group which is, has a coherent core or something like that which as you're as you're pointing out is, a, is an issue to, to start with. Uh, and then on the other hand i'm i'm sure our our listeners uh, who are not necessarily familiar with uh, world philosophies or comparative philosophies have maybe heard this term and are curious well well who are some of these people what are they and so there's this this uh, as you're saying it's not easy and it's a, there's a tension here in terms of using familiar terms but also uh, challenging their use and, and and thinking about what they mean so maybe uh, a way to get at this would be to get specific can you can you Tell us about some specific instances of the book of what people characterize as indigenous philosophy or philosophers that are being taught in the classroom or are are being thought about.
2: Um, the first volume in the series uh, was mm-hmm. written by a Maori philosopher. Uh, Georgina Stewart, and it is uh, the volume is called Maori Philosophy. That was the first book in the series. Um, Maori philosophy uh, is being taught in New Zealand, and the book is doing very well in Australasia. Uh, it just shows you, though, that Maori philosophy is not being taught anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. As of now, yeah, maybe the series will change that. But uh, that so so this is what the what Lilia and I were trying to do in this volume. We are moving away from this understanding of uh, there's a center of philosophy, and that center tries to survey the world. What we're trying to do is saying uh, we need to pluralize uh, our perspectives on the world, and uh, this means. Uh, Accepting the plurality on the spatio-temporal axis, um, at the same time uh, also reappropriating the past in such a way critically uh, that we can make sense of our lives here and now. Yeah, so again, I cannot give you a comprehensive answer on how sure. many indigenous philosophies are there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course, Yeah, so we, we can we can uh, direct direct reader or listeners to the uh, the first volume, the the Maori philosophy, and I know there's other people working on that. I guess one other thing that was interesting that came up in the book was the idea of co-teaching. So there's the these are these are living traditions, right? These are living um, people who are thinking, um, you know, in for instance Maori uh, traditions. So I guess one, one thought that came up is for people who are maybe interested in, in Maori philosophy who, who pick up that book, um, do you all think uh, about the questions in terms of uh, personal representation and also representation by the way of teaching texts in the abstract? In other words, uh, the, the question of whether Maori people should be the ones teaching Maori philosophy or whether uh, someone could pick up some, some Maori philosophy and then, and then teach it in in their own classroom. Is that, is that something that you've, you've given some thought to? Or that, and you do talk about personal representation uh, and sort of living the living nature of these traditions.
0: You know, I'll, I'll throw something in here that I was thinking about the other day. And it's the way that we, you know, we treat Plato as if he's like a living, breathing human being sitting next to us. And we try to encourage our students to approach reading Plato uh, as if they're reading something contemporary and relevant to their own lives. And then all of a sudden, when it's reading something from another culture, we have to hold it at arm's length like we're a scientist um, and it's our object of study. and and, and, And there's something to be said about the fact that we don't want to encourage, especially on the part of our students, just naive cultural appropriation, right? That they really can just pick up Maori philosophy exactly where they're at and engage it because they can't. They really do need, we all need, right? We all need some historical, cultural, and linguistic contextualization in order to hear something like Maori philosophy speaking to us in a relevant and contemporary way, right? We have to meet the text halfway, I guess, is what I'm saying. But, you know, I think part of the impetus of our series is that we don't want teachers in the classroom to feel like they are prohibited from engaging these discourses because they're not experts, because they don't have the language background. Um, So we, we try, I think that's another complicated line we try to walk which is making texts accessible but not simply available for naive cultural appropriation
2: yes yeah and um uh, can i jump in here Le? yes so uh, talking about co-teaching i did a course with kalmika a maori philosopher on critical theory in germany um and we split up the course such that kal um kalmika did the uh Maori texts, his own work on Maori philosophy, and we related it to the. Uh, this was my part relating it to the Frankfurt School. Uh, the students were very, um, very worked very well with us in that course. But I also must say that I learned a lot about how to even approach uh, a critical. Uh, text after that, uh, even approach uh, Frankfurt the Frankfurt School. So this was not only a co-teaching enterprise with Karl about Maori philosophy. Uh, I learned a lot about even how to go about envisioning such a course, uh, because you have to then even rework your own categories on how you approach something like the Frankfurt School, which many of us mm-hmm. are familiar with. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah and it seems like in this in this time of zoom and technology that we've been sort of forced to take up maybe there will be a bit more uh, of this kinds of collaboration from a distance that 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 will open up the the possibilities kind of work. Uh, let's talk a little bit then about your discussion of Chinese philosophy again in, in thinking about this thesis about relational knowing you take up the Neo-Confucian philosopher Ju Xi, um, drawing on the work of Roger Ames here in particular. Um, can you explain what's going on here, what Ames's interpretation is of of Shi? And I mean, again, all the all these interpretations, of course, are are scholarly and contentious, that so it's not without its critics, but the, you, this is the, the 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 viewpoint that you're taking of on Ju Xi. You're trying to connect this to the idea of relational knowing and how we should understand philosophy and and how we should teach it. Uh, so can you speak about that a little bit?
0: Sure, I can talk about that a little. Sure. Um, you know, Roger Ames has long been doing work in what he's calling Confucian role ethics um, and he's been using this term relational self and talking about relational knowing in this particular context um, of Chinese philosophy and cross-cultural and comparative philosophy. So when, when I turn to Zhu Xi in the book, you know, it's, Zhu Xi is an interesting figure because I think when we when we teach often Chinese philosophy, especially at the undergraduate level, they're sort of the usual suspects. You know, you read the early Analects, um, you read the Tao Te Ching, you read these sort of classic sources. Um, you know, that would be like taking up Western philosophy and really leaving it at Plato and Aristotle um, when there's this much longer, richer history of... Um, intellectual back and forth, you know, that this kind of commentarial tradition is, is a living thing that these 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 uh, writers over the centuries um, in Chinese history have been speaking to each other over the classics, appropriating the classics for sometimes completely contradictory political aims. You know, this was a very sort of subversive practice of commentary at times, right, making points that maybe were even at odds uh, with what other people thought the texts were saying. And so Ju Xi is one of those real central figures who come in at a certain point in history in the Song Dynasty and really rethink the canon um, as he'd received it. <clears throat> he constructs the, the, the four books, which he adds to the five classics, and he really renovates pedagogical models um, in, 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 in Chinese scholarship and at the Chinese academies at the time. So he's just such an inspiring thinker and, and, and trying to think of texts that I as a teacher Select because they they do give the students the best chance to meet the text halfway. I guess to go back to what I said just before, because someone like Jushi is really saying, you know, hey you, you know, and he really makes it clear, like he's talking to you, the reader, um, and he says really great things about what it means to learn, what it means to know and learn, and how reading itself is a formative process and how reading itself in in, in his context really becomes almost a kind of process of spiritual self-cultivation. And so thinking through, and this goes back to why do I say the word Ruism instead of Confucianism, because Confucianism was not the word for the tradition um, in Chinese discourse. Uh, The the lineage of the Ru uh, predates Confucius, certainly. Um, and Confucianism was constructed as a category by Christian missionaries. So the Rue, you know, how to translate that term, does it mean scholar? Does it mean literati? Does it mean uh, ritual master? It, it kind of pulls in all of these dimensions of what the Rue were up to in terms of both scholars and government officials, but also people who could uh, conduct civic and, 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 and family uh, ceremonies, some sort of like ancestor reverence ceremonies and rites. So rethinking what we mean by scholarship on the model of ruist theories and methodologies that's something i'm interested in in general and then in the pro, in the in the context of this book right bringing in someone like Zhu Xi, who is so much speaking to his understanding of his own disciplinary practices if we think about the ru lineage as it's as a discipline here that it, it gives us these tools that we can take back to students and say, you know, what is philosophy anyway, right? Is philosophy also this formative process? Is it also this process of moral or maybe even spiritual self-cultivation? Um, that, that's why someone like Ju Xi, I think, when you're looking for good pedagogical resources for teaching philosophy diversely, his texts just offer themselves up um, as something students can really grab onto because, you know, he'll say, don't read a book just to pass the test. You know, you really need the, you need to read the book. You need to read it a few times. You really need to try to accept the book on its own terms and let the book change you. You know, he's a very inspiring writer about the power of reading. And so that's that's just one. Of, it's one of those moments that I think it provides a chance for an intervention in prevailing discourses. And so when we think about relational knowing, that's why we took these existing discourses on relational knowing in contemporary Chinese philosophy and really wanted to bring in a thinker like Zhu Xi. Who's often, you know, known only to specialists, right? Not someone we necessarily bring into the undergraduate classroom all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so <clears throat> for Jushi, you can you can bring in the idea of uh, the ethical formation that is involved in in reading, and also, I guess, the later commentarial debates over Jushi is a way of, as you're saying, seeing seeing. Uh, Chinese philosophy is more than than just uh, Confucius and, and Zhuangzi. Uh, exactly. So for for Xi Yeah. So for Xi, you, you were talking about this as a pedagogical uh, tool. Can can you tell us a little bit about how you would have students uh, take sort of take this idea from Xi that reading isn't just about passing your eyes over the, the text in order to, to pass a test? How does that how does that work uh, pedagogically? Do you do anything any on that?
0: So that is one of the, the sections of the book is this uh, it, it's recounting a, a classroom practice um, in which I did require the students to memorize a text. And I tried to build them up to this by giving them, you know, Juxi passages early on to, to, you know, sort of convince them that reading should be a personally transformative practice um, and that one pass over a text was not enough. And so we take um, what Juxi considered to be one of the foundational texts which is the great learning. It's a chapter from the Book of Rites that he sort of resuscitates in the Sung Dynasty as being a central, a central uh, sort of s- source for him. And I have them memorize just the opening passages of it um, in seven parts. So this happens over the course of seven weeks. Every week they would have a little quiz, and they would just have to reproduce um, what they had learned, and they, so they would memorize the text cumulatively. And we would often engage in a few minutes of what's called quiet sitting, which is a, a Ruist um, meditation technique, very much influenced by, by Chan Buddhist techniques at the time, but taken in, into the Ruist or the Confucian context. Um, so we would think through, again, the scholarly strategies that Zhu Xi himself said you need. So he says you need to sit down and do some quiet sitting before you can study because you need to calm your mind. So the students would do that and we would have the, 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 the quizzes. And they would eventually memorize, you know, about a page worth um, in, in English um, or, or a very long paragraph written in English. And I always gave them the option to memorize it in the language of their choice, if they, as long as they could give me um, a version to check for their quizzes. Um, and then at the end of the semester, after they've, you know, at first, I have to say vocally resisted the entire idea. Um, but at the end of the semester, they've come to love it. You know, they really find it an inspiring text at the end. And it's become theirs. You know, it's really become theirs. They've, they've had to memorize it. And at the end, then, yes, I, I give them commentaries on, on the text, one by Zhu Xi and one by his sort of um, later rival, not rival, really, but he portrayed as his rival in, in the literature, uh, Wang Yangming. And they read these sort of differing interpretations um, of the text by these two thinkers. And then I ask them to write, write their own commentary, to produce their own commentary on the text. And I instruct them, you know, try to make the text live for your peers, you know, try to make it something that your friends would want to, to learn about. So in the end, it ends up, I mean, I think it ends up being really fun, but it, 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 you'd have to ask my students if that's the case. But I do, think, I, I do think it goes a long way toward problematizing what we mean to do philosophy, that it's not just about sort of battling it out in a dialogue. Or, or, or conducting sort of an analytical argument, argumentation, argument model, but that it has to do with this this process of deep engagement with a text, which eventually does lead to you finding your own voice right in that conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And um, so, one other thing about the the book, you have these. It seems you, you've got this pedagogical aspect to it. In addition to your thesis about uh, relational knowing and thinking through some first-order philosophical problems, you might say, and you're doing some methodology. So the, all these things are kind of inter interwoven throughout the the book, which I found um, really really interesting. And I um, I think that pedagogical case is the, the case of Jushi is a really nice place to see all three of those th- strands kind of kind of intertwining. So. Uh-huh. In the time we have left uh, let me just ask you this since we've been talking about pedagogy and we've been talking about the discipline if, if folks are, are listening to this uh, interview and and they want to say teach and learn philosophy beyond their area of training uh, and you know we're all busy <laughs> we also don't want to get things wrong uh, i've heard a lot of people say i don't want to do more harm than good by by presenting this wrongly to my students uh, I mean, aside from reading your book, obviously, what would you su- suggest for people who who want to do this? What thoughts do you have about about folks wanting to to branch out?
2: Um, I um, for my own teaching, I rely on co-teaching, um, so it's um, basically I ask colleagues uh, who I know work on those topics whether they'd be willing to to join me for a discussion, um, and it's pretty easy to do this through zoom um of course uh, the other person depending on the time zone will have to be available but that seems to be a good um uh, way to begin um the other thing is the series is building up <laughs> a rich source of material one could tap on uh, we already have uh, three or four volumes out there and we have many more uh, coming all of them will be primers meaning working with this approach um, I think many of the colleagues who write these books uh, would be more than willing to sort of help out <laughs> when it comes to you know such uh, Interventions, I mean, joining in classes elsewhere. Uh, because it currently, the way I see it, it is still a group endeavor. Uh, we are building up a field. And uh, in my experience, uh, the people working on um, these philosophies are very open and welcome uh, new takes on what they're doing. So um, I'm presuming that... Um, there would be interest in helping out. Um, uh, Long term, we would need a kind of uh, uh, database, uh, a kind of uh, uh, material out there, which can help people uh, diversify the canon the way we know it today.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess one thing I would just add is that, you know, it's okay not to do everything in every class. Um, I I certainly, you know, rely on where my, you know, where my skills and experience are to bring in material and and, and into my classes. Um, And another thing, you know, I think about that, that I think we do very much stand behind the idea that we don't want to just import European or Eurocentric methodologies and theories and sort of like frameworks for discourse onto the traditions. But on the other hand, I do think you know, it's okay to start with your own interests. So, if you are an analytic philosopher of mind, right, and you are you yourself are personally interested in certain questions, it is perfectly you know that's a good place to start in terms of like what would you want to bring in to learn more um, about how those questions might have been explored in other traditions. And I do hope that our book, you know, our book series can be a little bit of a of a of a and I don't want to say like one one stop shop is that the the, the phrase you know, but but rather than having to conduct your own broad research project online to inform yourself about this thing you want to bring into your, your intro class, for example, that you can have one book that does give you some of the cultural, historical, and linguistic context you might need to feel like you can engage the material responsibly with the students. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, um what uh, one comment. Uh, so I have also had students telling me, "Hey, by the way, why don't you talk to that person in that other department? That person works just like you on this and this field." So, so you know, work across disciplinary boundaries, and uh, I mean that works out too. Uh, you just don't have to, you know, search fellow philosophers. Uh, many of these uh, people, because of the hiring practices we have had in philosophy, are hired elsewhere today. Uh, um, that's also a point I think we should keep in mind.
1: Yeah, that's true. If you're if you're concerned <laughs> that, for instance, you want to do Indian philosophy and you don't have have Sanskrit, many people that have Sanskrit are in South Asian studies, religious studies context, and reading the same texts that the philosophers are. Yeah, let me I just go back to one other one other thought that we didn't we didn't pick up on, and um, this relates to when when people are thinking about forging out in in their classes and their curriculum, one worry might be about naming what you're doing. We've talked about this a a bit. Um, One of the distinctions that came up is uh, between say, Islamic and Arabic philosophy, or as we said, uh, the ostica, Gnostica uh, traditions, as people are thinking about what they're doing and how they're naming it, how much do these names matter? Um, are we always going to inevitably leave something out or imply too strong a commonality? How much should we be focusing on these naming conventions, do you think?
2: Um, As you said, Malcolm, it's a convention. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as uh, many of us know, uh, you... Need to work with conventions <laughs> to overcome them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so my take would be: uh, you need these labels in the beginning, uh, but uh, the idea would be to approach them such, uh, you know. And if you're doing the relational knowing, uh, we. Uh, work toward in that book Uh, you would then at least make students and maybe your own self also more aware about the fact that this is nothing more than just a name yeah yeah and uh, through the course of time maybe find uh, another name or you know uh, simply work towards the proposition or towards the attitude that this is uh, basically a name we might have to leave behind. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's a constant process. It's constantly, you know, sort of vexed. Not only, you know, it's what do I name my classes? How do we name the subdivisions under the Bloomsbury Enter to World Philosophies series? It's constantly rethinking sort of how these words communicate. But at the same time, you know, in a very practical way, recognizing the need to remain you know, uh, understandable to other people, um, n- who aren't necessarily specialists. So I think that that's the line we we do try to walk is, 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 is putting content out there that reaches the audience we're trying to reach, um, while still calling attention to the way the names d- do indeed concretely shape the discourses. Shape the
1: discourses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a, uh, it's a challenge and obviously a subject, of an entire disciplines of of thought, how, how, how language works. But I wanted to to touch on that again. So let's, let's conclude then by, by two, two questions. One, what are some of the upcoming books in the series? You've mentioned uh, a couple of them already. And then what are you two individually working on now? So other books in the series, what's coming up?
2: Uh, The next one will be on, um, uh, we have also the studies section there we have something on Andean aesthetics uh, we have uh, something on Du Bois coming up there are many in the pipeline <laughs> mm-hmm. sounds like it. Wow. yeah um, and then uh, we, we will also be having uh, b- books which work towards uh, problematiz- problematizing categories like Chinese philosophy Indian philosophy and the like Hmm.
1: Mm? Right, so so both content and also yeah. sort of methodological yeah. Yeah. intertwined.
2: Yeah,
1: and, w- and what are you working on then, aside from this this series?
2: Um, can I, uh, Leah, or do you want to? Yeah, go, first? go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I'll go uh, okay. after you. So, <laughs> I'm working on um, uh, the community building in contemporary Indian philosophy through an understanding of non-conceptual knowing. Uh, It's very interesting because at that time in colonial India, you think of people like Ramindranath Tagore, uh, Mohamed Iqbal, uh, together with Du Bois, um, uh, Ambedkar, and other figures. Basically, they they were working on exactly these kind of issues. Uh, How do we appropriate concepts? But Given that force of a concept, uh, which just does away with everything which does not fit its form, how can we appropriate it such that its exclusiveness, coming as it does from Europe? I mean, they're talking about one particular concept like nation. Um, yeah. How can we then use it in the Indian context without its exclusiveness? And then they come up with these very interesting understandings of non-conceptual knowing. Yeah. Um, And there I see a very, very strong, (laughs) I mean, there's strong parallels between uh, the book uh, we wrote together and what these thinkers were doing at that period of time, uh, pushing back against a conceptual hegemony, uh, of uh, Europe uh, and opening up the field to another understanding of what was happening on the ground. Yeah, very well aware that there is modernity in India. You have to make meaning of life under uh, colonialism, but also about the modernity, about being free in um, uh, modern and independent India, but such that those categories used to make um, meaning are not excluding uh, different people Living on the subcontinent, it is a fascinating chapter uh, in uh, intellectual history. Mm. Mm. It does. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Leah, what are you working on now?
0: Yeah. So I had I had two projects come out in quick succession, uh, two books. Just before the book that Monica and I co-authored, I had another book come out um, called Cross Cultural Existentialism. And so after those. I feel like I'm sort of very happily taking a bit of a break um, and, and sort of in a transitional period, you know, having had two projects like that wrap up. But I've I've been involved in a working group at the American Academy of Religion on global critical philosophy of religion. So I've been doing some work in kind of the construction of that discourse and kind of like um, comparative philosophy, right? what What does it mean in this sense to have a comparative philosophy of religion? What does it mean to do philosophy of religion diversely when that, that is a category that's obviously been constructed um, heavily based on sort of the paradigm models of, of Western monotheisms. Um, but in, in the longer term, you know, and I think the existentialism book really speaks to where I always end back up in philosophy is that my interest really is coming back to the discipline as it's constructed in academia today and saying, you know, how could this be different? And so in the, in, the, in the longer term, I am interested in these questions of philosophical methodologies, um, using the methodologies, for example, of, of Ruist scholarship um, as philosophical methodologies and thinking through what that means for us, um, what that means for the discipline of philosophy as it's constructed today in academic spaces um, at the institutional sites of universities. So that's my, my, my interest always, I think, again, come back to sort of philosophy is sort of my home base and and thinking through how i can you know uh honor all the things i love about this discipline i've committed myself to but in other ways um challenge some of the the norms today that that do promote inequities you know demographically um, as well as terms of in in terms of the content just that that we teach and consider as part of of the canon so that's that's where sort of my 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 longer term research will be is in thinking through philosophical methodologies from this, these, these diverse perspectives.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's a project that will keep you, keep you busy for, for a while. (laughs) Well, thank you both very much for your, uh, for your time today. And uh, we'll put a link as always up on the website to your book and uh, to the Bloomsbury website where the other, other books in the series will be coming out. So thank you very much.
2: Thank, thank you, you. Michael, for inviting us.
1: Mm. Of course, thank you.